Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. Glad to have you here with me. I am so pleased to have Kurt Brown with me today. He was a longtime Minnesota newspaper reporter for more than 30 years and now writes a popular Minnesota history column every Sunday for the Star Tribune. He's written multiple books, and his latest is called Minnesota 1918. It chronicles a period of history that hit Minnesota especially hard, a period plagued by disease, forest fires, and a world war all at the same time. So glad to have you here with me. Thanks, Eric. It's a pleasure to talk with you. So how did you decide upon this trifecta of disaster as the topic for your book? Well, I was actually approached by the Minnesota Historical Society Press So it was kind of a commission work, and I'll be honest, at the time, I was excited about the idea, but I really knew very little about World War I, and I hadn't really heard of um, the great Cloquet and Moose Lake fires of 1918, so the research for me was really eye-opening that this was the worst natural disaster in Minnesota history, and I think very few people know about it. So I dived in and got very obsessed, and... um, enjoyed the ride and hope the book isn't too much of a downer like you say it is a trifecta of woe when you when you braid together war and the flu and big forest fires but i think there's a resiliency that i hope that comes out of the book too that shows that kind of minnesota can do spirit and and the fact that these communities bounced back after getting hit with this triple punch of woe um was kind of amazing yeah, for sure. The way that you've been able to weave these stories together is really marvelous. Was planning it out difficult? Well, my first thought, Eric, my first plan, Eric, was to try to find a few people that real life characters who maybe were touched by two or three of these, you know, horrible calamities from 1918 and then try uh, to weave a narrative around those characters. But I have a great network from people. You were nice enough to mention the Sunday history column. Um, So I could put the word out to people at little town museums and stuff that I was writing this book. And I got a lot of great stuff back. And so I kind of shifted gears and went with more of a mosaic approach where I tried to take a lot of these stories from across the state and kind of throw them together. And hopefully at the end, the reader will get a sense of what that horrible year was like through that through that approach rather than just a few main characters. 
Were you able to draw some insight while writing this book from stories you'd written in your column? Well, actually, it's almost the opposite that happened, you know, and, and I talk about this when I give book talks. You know, every book that comes around in my first book was about 10 years ago. It was about a storm in Duluth in 1905. And right after we edited it and laid it out and re-edited it and relayed it out and hit finally hit that proverbial send button to send it off to be published, um, I had received a great photograph that was too late to make the book. And with this one, too, I've met all kinds of people descendants of people from 1918 after the book came out i could almost write volume two i've heard a bunch of great stories that i would have loved to include in the book but i think the the takeaway from that for me is that history evolves and the story is never over even though this stuff happened 101 years ago i've uh, come across a bunch of columns in the paper that didn't make the book that if timing were different they might have been major characters in my book so that's why I like history. It changes, it evolves as we get a deeper and greater understanding as time goes by. Right, right. So putting aside the flu, the forest fires, which of course we're going to get to, 1918, uh, just in general, what was going on in the state politically, culturally, economically? One of the things I found interesting was the fact that um, the, the big timber industry, when you think about the timber boom and the big virgin forests of northern Minnesota, that was already kind of on the downslide. They'd kind of sawed down and sawmilled up a lot of the big woods there. So they were kind of shifting in northeastern Minnesota, the economies to more of a farming economy than a forest economy. Uh, you know, of course, politically, the immigrants of Minnesota were most dominated by Germans. You know, we all think of Minnesota as a Scandinavian hotbed, but really there's more Germans here. And so when war and the U.S. finally entered the war in 1917, there were all kinds of reverberations felt across the state of Minnesota, especially in German strongholds like New Ulm. And it's hard to believe, but the governor, Governor Bernquist, Minnesota's Republican in 1918, actually threw out the mayor and the city attorney out of office in New Ulm because he felt they were too German-leading and not enough uh, American patriots. That they, they suspected a lot of Germans were up to no good as we uh, crawled into the war. The U.S. got into World War I a little late. Um, it had been going on and raging in the trenches and the mustard gas for a few years before we jumped in in 1917 and with all the germans in minnesota it really uh, caused great tension out across the state what was the political climate in minnesota what what party controlled the governorship the legislature well there was really a, a fire brands of uh, the nonpartisan league so it was a group of people kind of the precursors to the dfl the democratic farmer labor party that we know today the nonpartisan league was kind of the first one to galvanize the workers in the cities, the factory workers at the car factories and that kind of thing with the rural farmers and brought those two together. Um, so Charles Lindbergh, the father of the great pilot and the uh, aviator was running against governor Bernquist. He'd had one term in office. So he was challenged by the nonpartisan leagues, Charles Lindbergh, in what became a very bitter election for governor, they were trying to get the Republican nomination, which is how the third party, the nonpartisan league, kind of did it. They put their candidates up in party primaries. And Lindbergh's effigy was burned and hanged from lampposts in small Minnesota towns. And, you know, we think the politics of today are bitter, but back in 1918, it was pretty hot, too. Um, so part of what I found great about the construction of your book, is that each chapter is based on geography, a different town or city in Minnesota. How did you decide to organize it that way? Well, I think when, like I mentioned before, when I decided to go with this mosaic approach and taking kind of a lot of little stories and kind of putting them on a canvas of the book, you know, I felt, well, what sets these stories apart and different from each other and gives it kind of statewide sweep sweeps we use we like to work uh it became kind of a buzzword at the newspaper they were looking for stories with sweep so you know not just people in downtown minneapolis would be interested but people across the state might be interested so i just thought it was a it was a handy way to kind of break things up and 
move the reader around to different locations in the state to show kind of in totality what this horrible year was like, you know, not just in Minneapolis or St. Paul or Duluth, but, you know, in little towns and little counties that were feeling both the impact of the flu and the war and these fires up north. So as far as the war, what was Minnesota's involvement compared to the involvement of other states? Could you paint a picture for us on how Minnesota contributed to the war? Yeah, and I, I think it's important to point out and, and remind folks that this was the first world war. They didn't call it World War One because there'd never been one before, but really the U.S. hadn't been involved in foreign wars before. Of course, we had the Civil War, and Minnesota was early and active in that war. But, in, in you know, tens of thousands of young Minnesotans headed off to to do battle in this world war to stop the Germans from trying to take over Europe. And it, like I mentioned before, it really pit um, Minnesotans of German heritage, it put them into a quandary because really you had kind of the children of Germans who'd immigrated to Minnesota. Now we're being asked to go fight a war against, you know, their parents, old neighbors back in Germany. So I think that left a lot of people uneasy. And there were some motions even in Congress to, say that um, people with German heritage shouldn't have to fight on the front lines against Germany. They could help in the war effort in some other way. And so with with our high percentage of German immigrants, it really made things a powder keg in Minnesota in many ways. And of course, there was a lot of discrimination and prejudice going on against Germans. What was the overall effect on the German-American population? How did it last after the end of the war? Well, there's a lot of ways to look at it. In one case, there was a story out on the South Dakota border of a, a longtime Minnesota resident. A German guy was attacked basically by a mob of these super patriotic uh, Minnesotans who tarred and feathered the guy, drove him to the South Dakota border and said, if you come back, we'll kill you. And on the other side, there were things like the Germania Bank in St. Paul, a long-standing financial institution, downtown St. Paul, changed its name and quickly realized being called the Germania Bank with a war going on wasn't a good thing. But what surprised me most, I think, in in my research was, and we mentioned a little bit about the flu, um, you know, more soldiers. There were 118,000 Minnesotans who served in the first war, the Great War, as they called it. Uh, the First World War, and 1,432 were killed in action on the battlefields and the trenches and with the mustard gas, but 2,326 soldiers from the state died from disease. As These troop deployments and, and training troops to get ready for this war um, is where this strain, this deadly strain of the flu pandemic, which became the world's worst disease outbreak ever, um, you know, that's what spread the flu around the world was soldiers being transported to fight in this war. So the two really went hand in hand to wreak all this havoc. And the Native American population, you write in your book, suffered from the flu in far greater numbers than white Americans, based on population percentages, of course. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and like we've seen with a lot of the white man diseases, um, they've they've hit our indigenous people hard and harder than maybe they do with the white population. But surprisingly, too, when these fires broke out in October of 1918 uh, up in the Moose Lake and Cloquet area, the Fond du Lac Indian Reservation is right in the middle of the fire's path, yet no, no Native American deaths were recorded. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of ways when I look back and wonder, how could that be? And a lot of it was, I think, that these folks have been here, of course, for hundreds of years, and they probably knew when fire season was coming, this was the driest year in Minnesota in about 47 years. And the native people apparently knew what to do and sensed when to get out of there. While a lot of the immigrants who are new to Minnesota, the Finns and Scandinavians and Poles up in northeastern Minnesota, maybe didn't know quite as well what was coming and were caught flat-footed when the fires came. So what was the origin of the Cloquet Moose Lake fires? Well, it's fascinating that the railroads um, were ultimately pointed at as the cause and blamed for causing these fires. And uh, But the railroads were also heroic in rescuing more than 7,000 Minnesotans once the fire started. And because World War One 
was underway, the federal government had seized control of the nation's railways because we were at wartime. They nationalized the railroads. So when the investigations were done, what caused this great fire, it was it was pointed to that the smokestacks and the cinders and the ashes and sparks coming out of these trains that were driving through northeastern Minnesota, like I said, a dry, record dry year, the driest year in 47 years, um, the fires, the trains and sparks were ultimately blamed. And the, there were lots of rules in place where the railroads were supposed to make sure that the sidings and and all this slash wood was was cleaned up and taken care of and monitored the side of the tracks. But with World War One going on, a lot of the able-bodied men who would be patrolling for forest fires along railroad tracks were off fighting in Germany. So I think that contributed to this uh, disaster. Where exactly did the fire start? And can you talk about how it spread and what people in its path did to escape it? Sure. There's a little town called Brookston, Minnesota, and it's kind of up near Cloquet, a little bit north of Cloquet. Um, You know, the overall area for this fire was about 80,000 acres. So it wasn't the biggest fire in Minnesota, the Hinckley Fire, which came about 25 years before, uh, was a bigger fire, but this one ended up to be the most deadly fire. And um, for me, doing the research became fascinating because a lot of these survivor tales were captured in the 60s and 70s. There was a man named Edwin Manny, who was a Finnish banker up in the Kettle River area and the Moose Lake area. And the Finns trusted him with their money and with their stories. And so he went around in the 60s with a guy named Dan Reed, who's still alive. And they captured as many of these survivor stories as they could. And some of them were only comfortable telling what happened in their childhood in 1918. Years later, when they were in the saunas, of course, Finns love their saunas. So a lot of these stories were typed up in a single, single spaced, not online, no index um, volume, which I was lucky enough to get a copy of from this guy, Dan Reed, who lives up in the Kettle River, Autumna area. And he's a great historian. So from there, I was able to piece together a lot of the the personal accounts of what happened in the fire. Is there any account that stuck out for you, especially any particularly harrowing or emotional tale that affected you while you put your book together? Yeah, there was. And I'll, I'll, I mean, I could think of a million of them, but one I'll bring up is involved the Soderberg family, which was a large Swedish family with a big farm up in the Moose Lake area. And they were all worried about David Soderberg, one of the older boys, was off fighting in the war. And like I said, all war, I think, is probably horrible. But World War One was, I think, especially heinous with these muddy trenches and mustard gas and airplanes being introduced in warfare for the first time. Anyway, the family back in Minnesota is worried about David and looking at his pictures and wondering what's happening to him. When these fires sweep through in October, um, the Soderbergh family piled into a a root cellar. Um, I think there were 17 people, including some neighbors, who went into this root cellar, and the parents were outside throwing buckets of water on the door as the fire came through. And at one point, as the fires kind of eased up a little bit, they hollered down the the ventilation tube that led into these root cellars. Um, Is everybody okay? And they heard nothing. And when they finally opened the door, they found 17 of the Soderbergh children and neighboring children had been suffocated. The fire came through and sucked all that oxygen out. And um, I was up doing research a couple um, autumns ago for the book, and uh I was able to find this root cellar, which I thought reading about root cellars, I kept thinking of the Wizard of Oz and, you know, a little cellar by the house. But these are actually kind of like stone igloos made with timber and rock. Um, And it's where you put your potatoes and your ham to to feed your family in the winter. And the folks up there thought in the crisis, this would be the safest place to go. Um, But it ended up, as I said, deadly as a, kind of turned into a mausoleum. So by the time David Soderbergh returned from World War One, he found his whole family was gone. Oh, that's so horrible. Oh. For people who did survive the fire, was what was the best way that you came across? I have accounts of doctors and nurses who were out trying to help people 
um, just driving their cars. And most of them remember by 1918, cars were still kind of a new thing, but people actually drove into Moose Lake, just drove their cars right into the lake. People took blankets and drenched them with water. And when sparks would catch on people's clothes or hair, they would, you know, slap them with these wet, um, drenched blankets and tried to do that. And then people tried to flee. Of course, they hopped in these cars and sometimes there were more than 11 or 12 people hanging on the side of a Model T, um, going as fast as they could through this darkened smoke. And there's a place now known as Dead Man's Curve up near Kettle River where more than 70 people were killed, not by the fire, but by cars crashing because um, they were inexperienced with the speeds they were going and the terrain they were going. So the car would crash, and there's countless tales of people who were thrown from their cars, and as they tried to deal with broken legs and that kind of thing, then the fire swept through. And so it was really a, um, like I said, cars uh, were new and seemed like the best idea at the time. It did, didn't always work out that way. And uh, the trains, again, caused the fire, but also heroically saved a lot of lives, too. So there's two ways to look at the role of the railroad and train cars and all this mayhem. How equipped were the local fire departments in handling the fire? And were they able to contain it at all? Not really. And, I mean, you think of all the advances in firefighting equipment now with airplanes dropping water and chemicals on fires to suppress them. None of that existed then. And it was, it was literally, I mean, there's stories that, uh, you know, farm kids, um, you know, trying to take care of their animals, realizing the fire was coming and, you know, throwing buckets of water. So it was volunteers, you know, basically with buckets and shovels doing the best they could, but there wasn't an organized firefighting force. Uh, um, the role of cars and, and, uh, and automobile patrol was a new thing in Minnesota. And so a lot of the rescues and a lot of the recovery of bodies was handled by this kind of elite team of more upper class wealthy guys who volunteered not only their time but their automobiles to come up and and uh while everybody else was off fighting in the war to kind of serve as first responders so um the cars didn't work that well escaping the fire but they were certainly important for people getting up there to try to provide relief as the fire swept through on october 12th 1918 Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. What caused the fire to cease burning? Well, I think weather had something to do with it, and I think it, it basically just roared through these 80,000 acres and burned so bad that, you know, it just kind of burned itself out. It took the fuel out, and as bad as this disaster was, Eric, it could have got a lot worse. The uh, Duluth area was in high danger, and some of the fire came all the way down to Lake Superior, but thanks to the typography in the hills that kind of ring Lake Superior and Duluth, that had a lot to do with making sure that Duluth which in 1918 was a major global port city, uh, didn't go up in flames with nearby Cloquet and Moose Lake suffering the horrible fates uh, that they did. What was the final cost of the fire in lives and in money? 
Yeah, well, I'll give you some statistics. Um, they figured in the total cost in dollars, it was $30 million, which, of course, this is 100 years ago. So you can times that by, you know, big numbers. But the fire, like I said, covered 1,500 square miles, which is about 80,000 acres. Um, 11,000 families registered for help. Uh, the number of people affected was 52,000 people. There were 4,000 homes destroyed, 6,000 barns destroyed, 41 schools were burned. Many towns, dozens of whole towns were basically burned to the ground, smaller villages up there. And if you were lucky enough to survive the fire, you were often crammed into evacuee housing where you were susceptible to this deadly flu pandemic. So there were at least 106 cases directly tied to the flu coming after the fire, but I think that's a low number. And they even had the number of chickens burned in this fire, which was a staggering 54,083. Wow. I keep thinking about the, the Soderbergh family root cellar. It's so sad. Do you have an... Well, I have a story I can... Yeah, I can tell you a little bit more about that because... I was up doing research, as I mentioned, and talking to this fellow, Dan Reed, and um, I took a woman named Natalie out to lunch, and Natalie runs the Moose Lake Fire Museum, and for anybody up in this area who's interested in this topic, uh, despite its darkness, it's a beautiful museum, and they have all kinds of fascinating relics from the fires of 1918. Anyway, I was taking Natalie out to lunch one day, and she said, have you talked to the Ekman boys? And I said, no, who are the Ekman boys? Well, Chuck and Joe Ekman were 80-year-old identical twins, and they lived up near Kettle River, and their father's uh, farmstead was one of the few spots that didn't get burned by this fire. You know how fires sometimes will jump around and miss places? Well, it missed their home, and so they grew up uh, in the area and knew all the stories about the fire. So I went over to talk to them, and... uh, I asked, you don't know where the Soderbergh root cellar is. And Chuck Ekman, we've become kind of friends. He said, sure, do you want to see it? And he was 80 at the time now. Now he's in his mid-80s, but he's very spry. And he led me about a half a mile through some farm fields, his farm field and a few others, to this just little stand of uh, birch trees um, and, and pointed out and said, there it is. And there we saw this old rock cellar with a, uh, you know, a dark black opening. And he said, you can go on in if you want. So I hesitantly kind of sheepishly uh, walked in and turned on the flashlight of my cell phone and, you know, looked around at what had become this mausoleum. And there, there's no plaque there. There's no memorial. If it wasn't for, you know, the Ekman brothers who are in their 80s, I don't know if anybody would even know where this where this was. So we really do rely on these firsthand accounts, even though no no one, of course, is alive who was around 100 years ago to remember the fires. I guess some might have been infants, but um, the oral histories have been passed down in families like the Ekmans live on. And, and uh, Chuck had told me about Agnes, who was his 33-year-old pregnant aunt who lived nearby. And when the fires came in, her husband, like a lot of the men, were off trying to fight this fire unsuccessfully. So she ran to a neighbor's home and jumped into a well. And after the fire had burned through and they looked, they couldn't find the Gaustead family next door or uh, Agnes Ekman. Peterson was her married name. And about two days later, they moved some of the timbers away from this well and found the charred bodies. And the Superior newspaper in Wisconsin reported that uh, nothing was recognizable except uh, the belt buckle on the dress she was wearing. Uh, was They were able to identify um, Chuck's Aunt Agnes. So it's a, you know, some of these personal stories really put a face on the grief that Minnesota felt 100 years ago. Yes, that's an incredible story. It's great that you were able to document that place. And the photograph in your book, it really makes it real. To know that it exists, you know, a hundred years later, it's kind of a a forever memorial, um, even without a plaque. Exactly. Yeah, and a lot of times when you sign contracts to write these books, you there's always a clause that the author is responsible for finding fifty photographs to illustrate the book. And I remember at first kind of taking umbrage and saying, Well, I'm a writer, what do I know about pictures? But in a lot of the book projects I've done, 
um, some of the most memorable times tracking down the photos and the images that go to go with the words. And uh, it's, it reminds me of when I was a kid and collecting baseball cards, you know, finding these old photographs from the early 1900 disasters can get as obsessive as telling the stories. Wow. So I'd like to shift to the influenza, if you don't mind. How long did it take to strike Minnesota? Well, it really started, you know, experts aren't exactly positive where the deadly flu pandemic of 1918 started, but most of them agree it started in a a farm in Kansas where a farmer would have contracted this strain of the flu, probably from a pig. Well, then he went off to get trained, you know, one of the many uh, forts preparing soldiers for battle. And that's when all of a sudden dozens and then hundreds of, of soldiers in this training base um, beca- became sick, and uh, and from there it spread around. You know, there's a great misnomer. People call it the Spanish flu, and that's because both the U.S. government and the British government had censorship rules in place that you weren't allowed to publish stories that might affect the country's war morale. Um, Spain was not directly involved in World War One, so they had no rules like this. So when hundreds and thousands started dying of this deadly flu strain in Spain, they quickly... Uh, reported in the newspapers and called it the Spanish flu, but really it's more of a Kansas flu. They think it, it traces back, like I said, to Kansas. And it wasn't long before that that Wells, Minnesota, kind of in the Afton area, reported some of the first deaths in Minnesota. And by the end of the three waves of the 1918 flu, 12,000 Minnesotans were estimated to be killed and 50 million people uh, worldwide. And the statistics are really staggering. More people died in that one year of 1918 from the flu. Uh, four times as many people died in 1918 as did in the Black Death bubonic plague back in the late 1300s. Um, those, Some of those statistics are kind of questionable because, of course, the world's populations changed so much since 1300. Um, But in the U.S. alone, which was back then a a nation of 103 million, 28% of all Americans were infected and 675,000 deaths were attributed both to the flu and to pneumonia, which often kind of came on its coattails. And um, that's 10 times the U.S. combat death toll from World War I battlefields. And it's the death rate of 2.5% of people in America compared to 0.1 for most epidemics. And so, I mean, if you think about the U.S. population um, has basically tripled in the last 100 years, it would be as if 2 million Americans were wiped out in just a matter of months. Is there any especially poignant story you could tell about Minnesota's battle with the flu pandemic? Sure. One of my favorite stories came from a, a student nurse who was uh, working the overnight shift at the University of Minnesota Children's Ward. And the day shift people have been dealing with this growing flu pandemic and, uh, you know, were reluctant to leave this student nurse in charge. But but she she assured them she'd be okay and they should go home. And so they finally left her alone with, I think it was 26 sick kids. And she quickly said the first thing she did was take off her mask, take off her white gloves, because she thought she looked like an alien. And these kids needed just some regular old humans that looked familiar. And she one by one kind of cuddled them and got them to fall asleep. And uh, and one night, she said about two nights into this ordeal, um, a doctor walked in in the middle of the night on her and she thought, oh, my God, now I'm cooked. You know, they, they see I'm breaking all the protocols. I'm not wearing the proper uniform. And uh, so she figured she'd get fired, but the doctor quickly said, you got a second rocking chair? And she said every night he would come in and help rock these sick kids and try to look more human. So that was one of my my uh, more uplifting stories from the flu. Oh, wow. That, that's, a, that's a great one. Her name was Pearl MacGyver, too, which is one of my – you can't make up – if you wrote fiction, I don't think you could make up – better names than Pearl MacGyver, the heroic nurse from 1918. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And especially since we have our own television MacGyver. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This must be the real MacGyver's great-great-grandmother or something. <laughs> One of the, the most fascinating characters to me um, in your book is John Franklin McGee. Quite the personality. 
Would you mind walking us through his story? Yeah, sure. McGee was a Minneapolis lawyer, and the governor appointed him to a brand new uh, group called the the State Department of Public Safety. And this isn't like the when we think of the Department of Public Safety, we think of getting driver's licenses. But this was a group, a completely different group, that went away just a few years later. But it was organized to do a lot of things, basically to to control things like fuel um, during this wartime. And uh, but basically to root out non-Americans or to look for these German spies that maybe were hiding in New Rome or different places. But um, they were raising money and they were really trying to stomp out disloyalty wherever they went. And he was kind of the uh, the ringleader of this group of uh, kind of overzealous, over patriotic guys who were really um, stomping on constitutional rights of people. Um, in the name of protecting Minnesota and of protecting American values. And, and uh, you know, one time he testified in front of Congress that they should have lined up the Germans in Minnesota and shot them right at the beginning, and they would have been in a lot better shape. So he was the kind of the one behind getting, like I mentioned, the mayor of New Ulm thrown out of office and, and kind of other – he was kind of Joe McCarthy before Joe McCarthy, kind of a precursor to the Red Scare of the 50s uh, but back when the – when uh, the nonpartisan league and other people were susp- were being looked at suspiciously as not being pro-war enough, and he met a dark end. Yeah, he ended up um, leaving a long suicide note in his law office and pinning it all back to 1918. It was a few years later, but he had stressed himself out um, with this, like I said, overzealous patriotic campaign to root out all the traitors in Minnesota. And he ended up taking his own life and pointing out in a long winded letter, a suicide note that, you know, he traced it all back to the anguish he felt in 1918, trying to, to save Minnesotan, Minnesotans from the, from the German onslaught. And uh, yeah, it was a tragic end. What about this German onslaught? Yeah, well, I think they just, they just suspected that, that Minnesota had these German communities who were coming out and having rallies saying we shouldn't have to go fight against Germany because we came from Germany. And and a lot of the roots were so deep back to Germany that he just, um, there was a huge feeling of, uh, you know, pro-German disloyalty that McGee kind of fanned the flames uh, throughout the state and, and got everybody kind of worked up. And, you know, it's funny that 101 years ago is a long time ago, but it, is it really, you know, the more I wrote and researched this book, you had Forest fires burning out of control, which we've seen on the West Coast the last few years. We had soldiers fighting in far-off hot spots like we do today in Afghanistan. We had this kind of over, you know, distrust of immigrants. You know, back then it was German. Now it's people on the Mexican border. So a lot of the things that that seem so far ago and so it's, it's long ago history really keep reverberating today. So listening. To these interviews recorded in the 60s. I mean, this was a lot of tragedy, a lot of disaster heaped up on top of each other. Did you sense any heaviness in listening to these interviews, or, or did it seem like a lot of these interviewees just took these things stoically as they were happening in stride? If, if you understand my question. Yeah, well, a, a lot of the old timers would look back on on their lives and say you know, there were basically two periods of time before the fire and after the fire, and and uh, you know a lot of them, of course, were traumatized, losing lots of family members. But the goal for me and the and the hope was not to just make this a you know a book of woe. And so we did try to find uplifting stories that kind of reflect that resiliency. And and one of my favorites one came at the end of 1918. Um, winter was coming on in northeastern Minnesota, and the fire had come through, and, and the government was giving out built, basic building supplies, you know, wood, nails, roofing material, and these shacks popped up. Like one observer said, it was like mushrooms. Overnight, there were these little 16-by-20-foot shacks. And uh, and the, the, my favorite story, and I ended the book with a chapter about Beatrice Gellerman, and she had died at age 100 in Blooming Prairie, way down near Austin, Minnesota. Uh, whereas she had come to live, she was 100 years old, and uh, 
Her obituary ran in the Austin newspaper on the exact 80th anniversary of the Great Fire um, from October 12th. Um, anyway, she told this great story, and before she died, she wrote it down, which was great because I could then get a good firsthand account. But she was she was living with her family in this little shed, and she had a boyfriend named Floyd who was off fighting the war. Well, Floyd came home on leave in December. And he stopped in New York at Tiffany's and bought an engagement ring and came out and basically spent his whole leave walking from his family shack in Scanlon about three miles to to uh, Beatrice's shack in Cloquet. You know, you could imagine a Minnesota winter walking back and forth from these crowded family shacks. And, and uh, I think he was probably just about ready to explode when he finally said, well, why don't we just get married already? And they decided they drew up a plan and they were going to get married the next day because his leave was coming to an end. So they went off to find the pastor in the woods who came down in a plaid wool shirt, high top boots and a jacket, she said. And they all crammed into the into into the family shack that they built. And she wrote that, quote, one thing I remember clearly was the fresh fragrance of the shack, a new green unfinished pine, a fresh scrubbed floor and a cozy fire in the little fireplace. And she goes on to talk about how these two families, two months after the disaster, were crowded together in this pine-scented shack. And she said, the ceremony didn't take long. We stood on the rug in front of the chest. And she said when it was over, her her now husband Floyd slipped a $5 bill to the minister as he was filling out the marriage certificate. And he gave him the certificate in a little booklet. And that evening, they looked in the book, and there was a $5 bill in an envelope with B written on it. She said the pastor had refunded her $5, making it, quote, a very simple, inexpensive wedding. So even though there's all this horror in the book, there's also uplifting stories like that one. Yeah, that was nice. You've had a chance to travel through Minnesota and talk about your book. What questions are you most frequently asked? Because I would imagine you speak to a lot of people with very special personal connections to these stories, parents, grandparents. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing how many people can directly point to people living either through the flu side or the fire side. And and it is funny because I mentioned earlier this Chuck Ekman fellow that I met, an 80-year-old guy who showed me the Soderbergh root cellar turned mausoleum. Well, when the book came out, we had a big book opening at the Minnesota History Center. My cell phone rang, and I answered it, and the woman said, um, is this Kirk Brown? I said, yes. And she said, did you write a book about 1918? I said, yes. And she said, did you quote Chuck Ekman? I said, yes, I did. She said, well, I'm his older sister, and I know a lot more than he does. And so <laughs> um, her name is Grace Mapes, and she lives in Invergrove Heights. And I said, well, I'd love to learn more and come talk to you. And, you know, like I mentioned before, these stories aren't over when we hit send to get them published. The, the stories get better. And, and once I told her I wanted to come visit with her, she her mood changed and she said, oh, you want to come visit? Well, that would be great. And I learned an important lesson that I've learned many times that when every family, it seems, Eric has one designated family genealogist and historian. And if you if you talk to the wrong one, you talk to the wrong member and quote him in a book, you can get in trouble. But <laughs> That's true, yes. <laughs> Grace and I have become good friends, and she's come to a lot of my talks. And, uh, you know, it was her Aunt Agnes, like I said, it was found in the well, and she has a beautiful oil portrait of Agnes in her house in Invergrove Heights that I was able to take a picture of. Of course, it was too late to make the book, um, but these stories, like I said, history is like a living thing. It keeps getting deeper and richer the more we look into it. So, um, yeah, and we had a big uh, 100th anniversary celebration in Moose Lake where candles were lit and memorial candles were lit. And an old organ from up in that area, which had survived the fire, was found and played for the first time in many decades at the ceremony. And it was very moving, and Grace was among those that had come back to Moose Lake where, where her family had suffered through the horrors. Wow, my goodness. So you mentioned this towards the beginning of the interview, but do you have enough material for a sequel? Well, no, I was I don't I don't think there's a lot of appetite for another one, but I really could. I mean, I've 
I found one story, and a lot of them end up in my Sunday column on page B4 in the Star Tribune because history happened before. I'm not sure that's why it's there. But, you know, one story involved a Austin dentist named Dr. Meany who was drafted in the – or he actually signed up to join the war effort in World War One. He ended up with a medical corps. And um, before a big battle in the woods, uh, in the forests, at the end of the war, he, as a lieutenant with this medical corps in a little village in France, got to know the mayor who was a professor in town. And one day the mayor invited him uh, to come have a tennis match against his daughter, Grace. And so all of the men from his unit came and kind of laughed as this 20-year-old woman, Grace, um, routed him on the tennis courts in this little village in France. Well, the, the, the dentist and doctor then went off to the front lines and, you know, did his best uh, uh, as he could, but he came home after the war and he lived in Austin, Minnesota with the Hormel family and they sent some food for the recovery effort to this little village and letters were traded and the families became close and on the 20th anniversary of World War One, in 1938, um, Dr. Meany and his now wife went over to be honored by the French citizens and um, there's a woman named Ruth Murphy uh, meaning is her maiden name, who lives in her 80s and lives in St. Paul. And she told me she was conceived on that trip to the little village in France. And she, last year, took 21 of her descendants, her grandkids and kids and nephews and nieces, back to this village where they celebrated and commemorated the 100th anniversary of World War One with this family that her father had befriended in 1918 on the tennis courts before going into battle. So... The stories get better and better all the time, and I could fill another volume. I don't think I, I will, but I could. <laughs> At least you could do a second edition, <laughs> an extra chapter or two. That would be fun. But in the meantime, luckily, I have an outlet to get these stories out through my Star Tribune Sunday Minnesota history column. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. It's such an amazing column. Um, where do you get your stories are people contacting you constantly? Well, it's a great question, Eric, because what, what we did the first time we launched this column back in October of 2014, um, we put a little, almost like an afterthought, a little tagline, we call it, you know, at the end saying, hey, if you have any ideas or suggestions for this column, email mnhistory at startribune.com. And somehow it magically filters into my gmail account and i joke with my wife adela that it's like i put my hand out on a monday and these little parachutes come out of the sky with little stories wrapped up in them and some of them will be you know just family history stories or different suggestions kind of from all over the place and there's not too much that i'm getting like deluged and it's hard to manage but one or two good stories kind of falls in my lap every week it's like crowdsourcing history and that's why I love it, because I get to then, you know, take these ideas and with the help of the Minnesota History Center's database and Ancestry.com and the Star Tribune archives, I'm able to do a little research from these ideas that I get from the readers. And then I get to spin the stories every week. And we haven't missed a Sunday in 255 weeks. And it kind of feeds itself. So it's a it's I'm kind of living the dream as a storyteller of his and a history buff. That's amazing. So what does a story have to have to rise to the top for you? What has to resonate for you? Well, I think the best ones, the best columns are character-driven. So it's not about a period in time or industry, but it's about an individual. So if I can boil it down to, you know, one person's story, I think those are easier to relate to for the readers and easier stories to tell. Um, so that's, you know, that's one thing. And the stories I like to do the best are the ones of kind of the common man, not the person, you know, not Hubert Humphrey or somebody like that who, who books and books have been written about, but someone that maybe nobody ever heard of. You know, this week I was back in Minnesota. I met a woman uh, named Dorothy Swenson, who's 90, per, near 96. She'll be 96 in a few months, but she had a, a, a phenomenal career as a softball player, woman softball player in the early 50s, and she spent um, about 40 years working in Minneapolis uh, at the Sears Roebuck company, sending out all the stuff people ordered from their catalogs for more than 40 years. And, and uh, she started getting paid, I think it was 46 and a half cents an hour. And 
just to talk with her, she brought out her old baseball bat and her scrapbook, and we went through a lot of her uh, old memorabilia from the early 50s when, you know, I didn't know it was popular for women to play softball, but she had actually lived through the Depression in North Dakota where her brother died and her mother died, and she got kind of farmed out to relatives in Minnesota, and and uh, she moved into a house in Powderhorn Park in 1964. She wouldn't tell me what she paid for it, but she still lives there today. And so just finding those little forgotten people or people who could be forgotten members of Minnesota's past. And they have such great stories to tell that it's it's fun to try to link the living and not just write about dead people. And, and even if I'm writing about someone who is no longer with us, uh, no doubt their descendants are around with with memories and stories and letters and journals that make the stories come alive. That's great. So you've already admitted that you came back to Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> can you tell my listeners where you live now? Sure. Well, I, I can give them a, my whole life in about two seconds. I grew up in the Chicago suburbs, but I came to St. Paul in the 1970s to attend McAllister College. And then I spent, uh, like you mentioned at the outset of the show, um, um, more than 30 years in the daily journalism business. I started off at Fergus Falls Daily Journal and the Associated Press and the St. Paul Pioneer Press and the Minneapolis Star Tribune. And so after our kids had kind of grown, we have three kids and scattered, um, my wife and I decided we wanted to stage a second act. So we decided to move to a little trout stream near Durango, Colorado, where my late parents had built a house in the 80s. And uh, the editors of the Star Tribune were nice enough to to come up with a freelance contract for me to do this history column. So I get to write about Minnesota history, mostly from 1,700 miles away um, on, in the foot, foothills of the Rocky Mountains. So I am truly living the dream um, but I do get back to Minnesota regularly, and when I do, I love to meet people uh, like Dorothy Swenson, the softball-playing Sears worker. Oh, that's excellent. I've got listeners who may want to contact you as well. I think you already mentioned your email address, right? Yeah, they can. sure, they can email me at mnhistory at startribune.com, and like I said, it will somehow magically come into my Gmail account. Um, I also have a Amazon page, which you can get to by just typing in www.tinyurl.com slash lowercase Kurt, C-U-R-T hyphen books, Kurt books. You can find the three books I've published and the two eBooks too that are under my name. So um, I'm easy to find, surprisingly easy to track down. So it's Minnesota 1918. When Flu, Fire, and War Ravage the State. It is published by the Minnesota Historical Society Press, and copies are available in all the local bookstores. Yeah, the Minnesota Historical Society Press um, kindly decided to reissue the book as a paperback, and uh, so I was back on a book tour in Austin, Minnesota, uh, as well as St. Paul recently, and I will be back again to, to talk to people and help tell the stories from 1918 Minnesota. Well, thank you, Kurt. This has been a lot of fun and really informative. All right. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate it. This has been another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. Until next time. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.